Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. This time I'm joined by one of the UK's top experts on political party finance and campaigning, Professor Justin Fisher of Brunel University. Justin will be a familiar name to some listeners as he leads the big academic survey of election agents done after each general election. So Justin, I suspect, has sent questionnaires to many listeners over the years. So welcome to the show, Justin. Hi, hi. Good to see you. And I hope listeners have been good at returning your surveys after previous elections. Uh, they've been extraordinarily good. We, You know, it's it's not an exaggeration to say we couldn't do the research without the cooperation of agents. We're always, you know, very, very grateful for their help. One of the things, obviously, that survey helps you do is understand how politics really works on the ground. So let's start with the state of political party funding in Britain. How happy or not um, should we be about the role of money in UK politics? It, it regularly makes for a sort of quite negative stories, often in you know, news outlets like The Guardian. And obviously, I've got my own views and my own party has particular views. But what's your sort of outside expert view on how we should feel about the role of money in UK politics? Well, I think there are good and bad things about the, the system as we have it. I mean, in terms of good things... I think, by and large, compliance is pretty good. I think that's that reflects the way most of our politics is done most of the time. The people who go into politics, whether they're politicians, candidates, electoral agents, people who work in parties, for 99% of the time do so for the best of reasons. So I think compliance is pretty good, whether that's delivered by professional compliance officers or, or, or volunteers. The other aspect I think is good is that one of the success stories, ironically up until 2020, of British politics was the efficiency of British political parties in terms of managing their finances. So if you go back to the period really from the late 1980s through till about the mid-2000s, what you saw was that parties were routinely spending more than they generated year on year. As a consequence, they found themselves in debt, not because they were profligate, spending money here, there and everywhere, but simply the costs of operating. And what we see really from the mid 2000s onwards is parties being able to balance the books in a way that's quite extraordinary, given the amount that they do. Now, I say up until 2020, because the most recent accounts show that certainly the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats had a considerable, spent considerably more than they brought in in that year. Now, the post-election year is always challenging for parties, but certainly in the case of the Conservatives, for example, the amount that they brought in adjusted for real terms was the lowest for 20 years. So... I, th I think there, there, there's a potential problem there. But overall, parties have been very efficient and admirably so. Just maybe just diving into that point slightly before you come on to the bad side of the ledger. <laughs> so I think for the Lib Dems, in a way, the, the 2020 picture is a very straightforward one, which is the party made a big surplus on the 2019 general election campaign and is therefore you know, 
using up that surplus now rather than having money sit in the bank for the sake of it. And that model of making a surplus from a general election and then using that to subsidise subsequent years of activities, that used to be the Conservative Party model years back when the predecessors of yours, like Professor Pinto Javinsky, was doing his studies. That was a very standard model. It's the Conservative, though, figures in 2020 that most surprised me. And obviously, not being conservative myself, I'm tempted to try to read bad news into them. But I do think there was a surprising gap between the apparent sort of political strength of the Conservative Party after the 2019 election and their financial weakness. Is there any insight you've got as to as to what has actually caused that? Not as such in as much we don't know why donors might have been less generous in 2020. But like the Liberal Democrats, the Conservatives made a considerable surplus in the 2019 election. I mean, the amount of money that came into the Conservative Party for for, for the election in 2019 was phenomenal. And like the Liberal Democrats, they've kind of lived off that surplus. But I think that may point to sort of better financial health if you look beyond year-on-year comparisons. But I do think it's a slightly dangerous way to proceed uh, because what happens if you don't have bring in a lot of money just before an election? And the Liberal Democrats, for example, were able to raise a considerable amount, largely from one donor, in the run-up to 2019. Now, that uh, success might not be repeated. So I do think that there's a problem for any institution if they work on that kind of cycle oh, it'll be all right the people will come back to the fold come 2024 or 2023 where there's no guarantee that that will actually be the case and it does seem to me that one of the problems for parties is not so much raising money at election time it's raising money in between mm. and it's paying for the salaries of those people who work so hard for the party in the less exciting years you know, it's it's more exciting working, working for a political party in the run up to an election. The year after, where you've got potentially four or five years to wait, that that's not the time that's going to attract donors to yeah. such a degree. Yeah. And there's so, almost an inverse relationship, isn't there, between people's willingness to give money over time and how effective the giving of money is that. You know, people become more and more willing to give money the closer and closer you get to polling day. And actually, your ability to get real value from the money, if you're a political mm-hmm. party or individual campaign, diminishes as you get closer and closer to polling day. It's changed a little bit with digital advertising that makes spending large sums of money very quickly possible. But a whole host of party activities around market research, getting staff, campaign staff in post and so on. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff where you basically want to be able to start early and therefore you want money at the point at which people are least willing to give. Absolutely. And and the point about digital is important because what's changed with digital is that parties are able to spend what we call late money, Mm. uh, money that comes in in the in the last four weeks of the, of the campaign, where previously that was very, very difficult. There's a very famous example in 2001 where the Conservatives received a donation of, I think it was £5 million, two days before polling day. Now, you know, getting money in is never unwelcome, but in terms of having any bearing on the election, it was, it was utterly irrelevant. So Just to be actually, clear to any potential donor listening, if you do wish to give the Lib Dems £5 million two days before the next polling day, we will happily accept it. <laughs> 
you know, no, no, but but you 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 put your finger on a big problem. So, what drives the donation cycle, particularly for parties like the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives, is the general election. Now, to a slightly lesser extent, money comes in a little bit for subnational elections, but it's the general election cycle that drives it. And as you rightly point out, a lot of very, very important expenditure will take place maybe two years before polling day. So it it, it is a problem for parties. And I've long argued that in many ways, the problem for political parties is not that there's too much money, but that in many respects, there's too little. Because the market for getting money into parties is inefficient. It's not driven by popularity and cause. It's driven by the timing of the general election. Now, if I could go on to the things that I think are a problem, what's very clear is that a lot of the legislation that was introduced in the last 20 years has been pretty successful in terms of uh, much greater transparency, in terms of greater clarity on what spending is permitted, particularly, I think, at, at constituency level. But what is a problem is that it hasn't curbed what we call large donations. So the expectation was that transparency would produce a kind of self-denying audience for for, for donors. So they would be embarrassed about giving large sums because it would be in the public eye. That has not happened. So large donations continue. And what's been quite clear particularly for Labour, but also to an extent for the Conservatives, that there's been a greater concentration of where the money comes from. So one of the things about the Labour Party historically was that the if there is any influence from contributing, and I think that's, that's an empirical point rather than one that we should assume, that was dispersed by the fact that there were quite a large number of affiliated trade unions. They differed in size, et cetera, et cetera, but that was dispersed. As trade unions have merged, and indeed as some have disaffiliated from the Labour Party, increasing amounts of money come from single sources. So Unite is certainly one of the big, big funders in the case of of, of the Labour Party. And we've seen in uh, recent months some concern about the large sums coming from a relatively small number of contributors to the Conservative Party. Now, None of this implies that there is anything wrong going on, okay? We shouldn't just assume that because uh, a contributor makes a large donation, or indeed any donation, that that contributor wants anything in return, or indeed gets anything in return. But what it does do is create unease amongst the population, and indeed amongst politicians, about whether that's occurring. And what we end up with is this cry of get big money out of politics. Now, I do think that that's a potent slogan, but unfortunately, it's a slogan without any particular solution put forward. And I do think that uh, if we're going to try and get big money out of politics or try and reduce the at least the appearance and the 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 possibility that donors could exert influence, then we have to look at the whole gambit of um, political funding, just as previous large inquiries like the Committee on Standards in Public Life 
and the Hayden Phillips review did. It's not, you can't just do one thing, you have to look at all the others. The other aspect about expenditure, and this is one where I think the government has the right idea, but is approach or seems to be approaching it wrongly, is on expenditure limits at national level. Now, these have never been adjusted for inflation since they were introduced in 2001. And so in real terms, they're probably worth about half or just over half of what they were when they were introduced. And the government did indicate before Christmas uh, of 2020 that they were going to restore the link between inflation and those expenditure limits so that parties will be able to spend a more realistic sum. The problem, it seems to me, is if you introduce that in one um, in one go, because it would mean a massive leap in the amounts that could be spent at national level, at constituency level, and indeed in local councils. Now, that things appear to have gone quiet on that front. It wasn't included in the elections bill, but I think it's something to watch mm. Because while it's well-intentioned, I think it has the prospect for disaster if the governing party, for example, has demonstrated its ability to raise uh, many millions in an election but not be able to spend them because of the limits. If you raise them, well, actually, you go back to the problem, the the issue you described at, at the start. If the Lib Dems had been able to spend a lot more than they were allowed to, would they have had that? surplus which has got them through 2020 so i do think there's also a question of in a way fairness of well there's two elements of fairness about the electoral system isn't there one is that it's likely that if there were a big increase in limits that would disproportionately benefit the tories as things stand i mean i I tend to shy away from the term fair because it can mean whatever you want it to mean one argument about the conservatives is that they're getting lots of money because they're popular. That, from one perspective, is perfectly fair, perfectly proportionate. Uh, and the other parties are getting less money because they're less popular. Yeah. So, so Labour, for example, has lost almost all of its business donors because it's less popular with them. Now, that seems to me in many ways fair. So I, I, I do think there's a danger that it could disproportionately advantage the Conservative Party as things stand. And I think, I mean, within your example of the limitations of using the word fairness, I guess, is another, I will maybe use the word equality issue wrapped up, which is that it means that some people are essentially able to have a bigger voice in the political system. So if you are a rich person and if you are a poor person, you both only get one vote. And that is, or obviously in a multi-member ward election, you might have three votes, but you know, you both, you have the same number of votes. If, however, one of you is rich and one of you is poor, and you are therefore able to donate to a political party, assuming that money in some way helps political parties do better, and certainly political parties sometimes stuff up their use of money, but I think that's a fair (laughs) assumption that overall a political party that has more money, that's better. It does mean that you have more of an ability to influence the outcome of an election if you are rich. And I think that's where, in theory, the spending limits should equalise that to say, well, OK, we're going to put a cap on the limit of the influence. Fine. I think the, in addition to, as you say, the question about what should the number be, it strikes me there are two particular problems with the current national limits. One is the way in which they exclude staff 
So if you have centrally employed staff, they don't count towards your national limit, which did result in one of my favourite exchanges with the Electoral Commission back when these rules were first introduced. And I was working at Lib Dem HQ and I said to the Electoral Commission, look, I just want to understand make sure I understand your guidance on these national limits correctly, because if I understand what you're saying and what the law says, we have somebody we employ at HQ called General Election Planning Manager, and that person's salary doesn't count towards our general election limit. Is that right? And the answer is yes, because those limits exclude staff. So the limits, the definition is a weird definition. But the other problem is that you can target your national spending geographically very specifically you can count against your national limit a mail shot that's from your party leader and which names even specific local areas and refers to local issues but you have it from your party leader and you can just send those out in marginal seats and what that means is that in practice you've got a constituency expense limit for candidate stuff of maybe 10 12 000 pounds typically for the short campaign but you can spend hundreds of thousands of pounds from your national limit in the same seat and that to me in a way is the real failing perhaps of the electoral commission is they've overseen a disappearance of the value of constituency expense limits because parties now spend so much against their national limit and in doing that not only does it break the sort of ex- the value of the expense limit for a healthy democracy it also means that campaigns are more and more nationalized So in a particular constituency, parties can spend much more on activity that doesn't name the candidate than on activity that does. And is that, I think normally when people talk about what a healthy democracy is about, it involves in some way candidates and their merits and holding them to account and so on featuring. And instead, we've ended up with a system that positively advantages things that airbrush the the individual candidate out out of the campaign. So... It seems to be that that latter problem, that essentially that disappearance of constituency limits is something that whether it's the Electoral Commission or indeed parliamentary committees looking at this and just haven't really got their head around what a big change that has been and the problems that flow from that. Well, I think I, I would take I, I would disagree on some of that. Mm. I, I, I think it's a potential problem. I don't think it's fair to say that the blame falls at the door of the Electoral Commission. So this question of notional expenditure has been around since 1950. And it all effectively became established in law over the positioning of a billboard and an advertisement in the Times, where the judge ruled that this was uh, expenditure on promoting the party rather than the candidate. And, and that was the Liberal Party, wasn't it? And under Jeremy Thorpe, it was the Liberal Party that first did that sort of national advertising that sort of set the legal precedent. I'm not sure it was a wise precedent to set. <laughs> well, well, possibly. I mean, I think what one has to accept is that targeting is a reality. and But critically, targeting of campaign expenditure happens regardless of electoral system. So if we look comparatively... You get targeting. Obviously, it's more, it's likely to be more, or it's likely to be accentuated in our system because we have first past the post electoral system. But we can't undo that and we can't make parties unsee the benefits of targeting. And all parties do it. And of course, your party Mm. has been phenomenally successful 
at, at targeting, you know, making sure that it ran campaigns in the right seats. But so, so I, I, th I think that's context to it. And in many ways, you can't blame parties for doing that. The issue comes, as you say, if the limits uh, are at constituency level are, are in effect rendered meaningless. And it's certainly true that as parties have become much more sophisticated at doing these things, in many ways, the national campaign has been subsumed into the overall constituency campaign, well, the, the overall constituency campaign strategy. And that's a sign, actually, once again, of parties being incredibly efficient, incredibly uh, thoughtful about where the best places to, to, to put money are. Now, what should you do about that? Well, in one sense, the, the genie's out of the bottle in terms of targeting, and we can't undo that. But I also think that the potential alternatives to that may actually be worse than the system that we currently have. There's no question that the system we have currently have is imperfect, but I would dispute the idea that you effectively nationalize the campaign as things stand, because of course there are still constituency campaigns going on. They're very, very important as our research shows, and lots of candidates spend uh, a fair bit of their limit on, on that activity. And so it's not completely nationalized. And what that means is that it doesn't have a detrimental effect on turnout overall. So we did, we did some research on this, on, on whether we, we would have assumed that this would have a detrimental effect so that seats that weren't targeted, would be, we'd see declines in turnout. That's not the case. But I do think that there's, there's a real problem if, if you try to legislate on that more strictly on the, the, the link between the central and the constituency campaigning, that there's a greater danger of that nationalization of, of the campaigns. And on balance, and I've argued this in the PACAC select, uh, select Committee hearing recently, and also at the Public Bill Committee on the Elections Bill, that I think on balance, as imperfect as it is, the current system is probably better than any of the alternatives. Well, let let me give you an proposed. example then, I think, of a change which both would make things better, but which also the Electoral Commission hasn't previously supported when it's been proposed in Parliament. And therefore, in a mm. sense, I think, you know, they some of the onus is on them as to why we have the current system. So one, one option would be to say that if you do campaign activity, that is uh, targeting electors at an identifiable geographic location, or possibly at their home, you could say if it's targeting the voters at their home, that then that expenditure has to count towards the constituency limit. So that would capture, for example, phone calls where you know the geographic location of the phone number. It would capture direct mail where you're putting an address on and it would capture some geographically targeted digital advertising. And I think even if you were to, you know, maybe even explicitly define it to be just those three techniques in the legislation, that I think would capture a huge chunk of what is currently geographically targeted expenditure that counts against the national limit, but doesn't mention the candidate. 
and therefore you could have a sensible limit that sort of works as to how much is actually spent in a constituency and you would re-incentivize featuring local candidates more so so yeah what what do you think would go wrong if that was the the reform that was introduced I, I don't necessarily think it would go wrong i think it would be an administrative nightmare for parties and for regulators because of course you'd have it's it's one thing for part say to parties you've got to declare every bit of direct mail that has gone to you know ealing north but it's another thing to be able to audit it and i think that that creates one of the beauties of the current system and i i readily accept that it's imperfect is that in many ways it's very clear if it says the candidate that's local expenditure. If it doesn't, it's national. And I think once you start getting into that sort of auditing culture to try and establish that and, and telephones, telephone voter ID, which is diminishing, actually, as, 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 as we move forward with yeah. different technologies, I think that becomes very difficult to enforce. Yeah. And one of the problems of party finance le- legislation, not just in this country, but around the world, is it's only useful if it's enforceable. And there can be a real danger that we get into the minutiae of sort of apportioning expenditure here, there, here, there and everywhere. And actually, it doesn't necessarily achieve what we want it to achieve. And by and large, what we want it to achieve is elections that are fought on the basis of as far as possible a reasonably even playing field. We, we have to accept that the logic of an election is that parties will target, just as we accept the logic of a football match that says when a team plays Brentford, they play their best possible side because they fear losing. But when they play Arsenal, they'll put out a weaker side. But in, in terms of, well, I guess there are two things, two thoughts what you've said triggers. One is pity the poor independent candidate because... An independent candidate doesn't have a national UK-wide expense. And so independent candidates now are at a sort of, in a way, deliberate, significant disadvantage in that if an independent candidate is trying to beat a candidate from a political party, the political party can use lots of its national expense limit to spend maybe 10 times as much in that constituency as the independent candidate is able to, even if the independent candidate can raise, you know, all the money that they want, that there's a real buy. And I, I think that it, it surprises me the Electoral Commission is, doesn't seem to be that concerned about that, because in other respects, in terms of its guidance and its training, the Commission quite often features, if anything, the interests of independent candidates surprisingly heavily. And yet mm-hmm. when it comes to this, essentially, we've said you, you, we have a two-tier system independent candidates are able to do far less in a campaign than political parties they're up against. The other element, actually, maybe we should discuss that and then we'll come on to my like the second point in a moment. I mean, I, I, you know, legislation that serves all participants equally is very, very difficult to achieve. But I think it's important to stress that the, the kind of mythical independent candidate in a general election is up against a lot more mm. than just... Mm spending you know there's there's name recognition there's there's the infrastructure that the the local parties have i mean if you look back for example 
and all those people who left the Labour Party um, under Jeremy Corbyn, the, the candidates, and stood as either independent candidates or for other parties in 2019, they all lost, right? Not because the, the, the other parties had so much more in terms of resource. They lost because there was a greater loyalty to those parties, for, for good or for ill. Yeah. But do you think uh, people like David Gork didn't suffer from the Tory ability to massively outspend him when... Without looking at that individual constituency, it's very, it's very hard. It's very hard to tell. But I think, by and large, if you what's notable about independent candidates, and no one wants to disadvantage people deliberately, but what's notable is how, generally speaking, how unsuccessful they are at national level. Uh, agreed, at local level, there's uh, in terms of local authority elections, there's more success. But I, I think it, it's dangerous to, or potentially dangerous, to start drafting legislation in the interests of something that just barely happens. It's very, very rare for independents to come through and, and do anything of any note in a general election. And so I think on balance, yeah, of course, any, any, anyone without a large national operation is going to be disadvantaged. But at the same time, there are other things that uh, the, the disadvantage independent candidates is not just the money. And in fact, in many ways, the better example is with a smaller party that has found itself to be popular. And so the example, obviously, there is UKIP in 2015. And what does it show about the, the, the system? Actually, the system was remarkably effective there in punishing wrongdoing in terms of the level of overspending. The interesting thing was where the blame fell there was on the national party rather than the candidate and the candidate's agent. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, the other point to, that I, is always worth making is whether or not voters uh, think differently. So when that particular case blew up, the voters of that constituency gave the particular candidate considerably more votes than they had done in the contest when they were fighting UKIP. So, so you know, voters aren't that bothered about these things. It doesn't mean to say you shouldn't be, be clear about the law, but I think the, the, the small party example is the more perhaps the more pressing one. And the indication from the judgment in 2015 is that the system's imperfect, of course it is, but where there is wrongdoing, it'll be punished. Well, I guess that comes to actually question about how auditable or not it would be to more clearly track national expenditure that is targeted in particular constituencies. And, and maybe in part, I come at this from a different angle from you, because I've done things like sorted out the big mail shots that are targeted. And I'm just conscious of what a big audit trail of documents you leave behind unless you set out to systematically delete files and make sure backups were turned off and all of that. So in a normal, reasonable world of not requiring undue burdens of extra record keeping or whatever, you do have things like a big data file that gets sent to a direct mail firm, which has postcodes in it. So there is quite a record, I think, that is, it's, it would be possible to audit. And in particular, as with most of this sort of regulation, in a way, it's not perfection that's necessary. 
it's if the bulk of what a party does in the bulk of target seats, if if that you can capture, then it, it could make that sort of regulation meaningful. And so definitely there would be oddball freelance mini bits of direct mail operation that are really hard to track. But at heart, could you require parties to keep the data files, including postcodes, of the big direct mail operations they do? Yes, you could. Could you require them to then file them, say, with the Electoral Commission, so that in terms of GDPR concerns, Mm -hmm. they're not keeping the data themselves for a long time? Yes, you could. If you make if you make failing to keep proper records of, of that sort of offence, then I, I, I can see a, a world in which it both works and even as a volunteer, you know, I've, I've done this both as staff and as a volunteer, mm-hmm. but I think even thinking me when I've done it as a volunteer, that wouldn't make me think, oh my goodness, I just can't do this role. The burden is too high. It basically is you've got to remember to keep a few files and you've got to okay. file them afterwards. That's I, not that big a burden compared to, what you have okay, to no, no, I, I see that you can do that on direct mail. I, I have my doubts, significant doubts about telephone canvassing mm. um, and indeed about digital. But the, it goes back to actually a problem that you identified. That this effectively nationalises candidate spending. Mm. Because what you, if, if you do that, what you have a situation is that Liberal Democrat HQ will say to the Lib Dem candidate in... Uh, Kingston upon Thames, you must only spend this amount of money because we're going to spend this amount. And that completely removes local autonomy. Now, of course, there is no complete local autonomy here, particularly where, and I'm I'm not not sure this applies to the Liberal Democrats, but particularly where in other parties you have professional agents or professional organisers. But it does seem to me to be a problem that if that the, the candidate's expenditure becomes controlled by what the centre does and what the centre wants to do. And sometimes what the centre wants to do is good for the party. And indeed, in the case of your own party, has been hugely successful. But sometimes the centre is very, very bad at distributing resources. And we saw that with Labour in 2017, where they distributed, the centre distributed lots of resources into seats that Labour was going to win anyway. So despite Labour's very impressive rise in its vote share in 2017, it piled them up in seats that it was, it was going to win anyway because of a particular view from a particular part of the central party. So, so my concern with that, and I, I absolutely get what you're saying, you know, on the one hand, how can it be right that you, you get lots of direct mail that says, vote Liberal Democrats, but we won't tell you who the candidate is. And we can see, I can see how that sort of could rankle. But at the same time, you're, you're removing that sense that the local candidate and the local agent determine what they spend the money on mm-hmm. to a greater degree than is already the case. And so, so for that reason, I think on balance... As imperfect as the system is, it's probably better than the alternatives. I guess the angle that I come at it from is in that sense, the ratio between the local candidate expense return spending and the national expense return spending in a marginal seat is already so massively lopsided mm-hmm. that I think in practice the centre party does control the messaging that happens. And indeed, one of the 
things that my own party, the Lib Dems, got wrong in 2019, if you look at the Thornhill Review ad post-mortem, was that that messaging you know, didn't work. And because it was the overwhelmingly dominant element of the campaign in those seats, it therefore meant the candidate was sunk anyway. And so, so I think you already have that, but you... In a way, you have very skillfully illustrated some weaknesses with some potential changes. Are there other changes that you would sort of champion then that you think, are there other ways of addressing some of these problems that would work? I think one of the problems that we haven't discussed, which was assumed to be a problem when the legislation was introduced, but went quiet and is now, I think, a potential problem, is third parties. Yeah. So. When the, it, the legislation was introduced, there was a fear, I think, that some organised pressure groups, and at the time it was the Countryside Alliance, mm. I think, yeah. w- would start to be quite effective in, in elections. As it turned out, they were badly organised. But one of the lessons from, not from an election, but from the 2016 referendum, is that people have got much more savvy about parallel campaigns. One of the big problems with the uh, 2016 referendum, and this was on both sides, both sides of the debate, was that the national spending limits of the designated participants, designated campaigns, were rendered meaningless by the amounts and the number of permitted participants who spent a great deal of money. And that genie is out of the bottle now. If we ever have a referendum again, and I know in many ways I hope we don't, but if we ever do, those rules are not fit for purpose. What we've seen with momentum in the case of the Labour Party is this attempt, possibly perfectly well-intentioned and perfectly, you know, you know, a belief in the in, in the ideas they're pursuing, is, is effectively challenging the. Uh, supremacy of the spending limits of those people who participate in elections, as as in they, 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 they're accountable, the candidates and the parties. And, and I think the issue with a... momentum is that they're very clearly associated with one political party. Yep. I, I can see that come the next, say, Westminster general election, if a group of environmental organisations get together and say, we're facing a global scale catastrophe for humanity. We absolutely need to get candidates elected who are committed to environmental action. And we're going to raise money and campaign and use all the sort of third party rules, et cetera, to do that. That may well have a very uneven impact in terms of benefiting some parties more than others and so on. Yep. But you could definitely look at it and say that is genuinely a principal desire to use the democratic system to get an outcome on an issue you feel, you know, passionately about. I think the difficulty with something like Momentum is that, at least to people outside Momentum, it looks like, yeah, but you're a part of the Labour Party. You know, you are mm-hmm. you are a wing of the Labour Party and therefore using rules that in a way allow you to extend the definitely the scope of what the Labour Party can do. But there are, I think if you were to try to define, you know, the difference between Friends of the Earth and Momentum in law... That is horribly hard because where would you fit the countryside alliance? I think some people would view it that it was a momentum type organisation. Others would argue it was more your environmental coalition type organisation. So is is it possible to come up with a definition that works? Well, I think if you have a start, your your starting point, and this is a problem that that has dogged attempts to reform 
party finance and indeed other areas of politics, is that people mistakenly go under the assumption that there are good kinds of third parties and there mm. are bad kinds of third parties. So the example you gave, environmentalists, who would want to argue against them? But if you paint it in a different way, let's say anti-immigration groups got together or, or, for example, people who wanted to restore the death penalty or whatever. You have to treat all third parties the same. You know, it's the same problem. You know, so this problem crops up in terms of donations. Uh, Labour seems to be of the view that trade union, large donations by trade unions are qualitatively different from large donations from anyone else. And that's as soon as you draw that distinction, you're, you're in deep, deep trouble and you're never going to get any change. And I think the same thing applies with with third parties. It's very difficult. And I, I think it would be unwise legally to say momentum, you're just about the, the Labour Party, but friends of the earth, you're here for everybody. I, I think my own view is that whatever the cause, you have to give primacy to the people who are accountable. And those are the candidates and the political parties. And it seems to me that if people are that passionate about the cause, well, stand for election. That's what you need to do. And there are vehicles through which you can stand. If you take the environmental case, there's obviously the Greens, but of course your own party has been the most environmentally progressive of the main three in the UK. They can, they can work through the existing party system. I, don't, I, I think there is a real danger in third parties distorting competition between people who are accountable, because ultimately the accountability matters. So if your Liberal Democrat candidate wins the election or doesn't win the election, it's because they fail to convince the voters they are accountable to them. But you know, Friends of the Earth go, or I don't mean to be unkind to Friends of the Earth, but an environmental pressure group just goes back and, and has no accountability with the electorate. So what, what would you change in the rules in this area? Or do you think the current rather sort of messy compromise essentially is is about as good as it can get in terms of defining and curtailing activities of third parties um well i th- i mean as it happens i've argued against some of the new restrictions that have been proposed in the elections bill so there's one where 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 there's it seeks to prevent people registering both as a party and as a third party, a political party, and as a third party. And on the face of it, you think, well, of course that's wrong. But in actual fact, that's only happened once uh, since 2014. And in the end, that organisation only returned a a spend under one of the categories. So it seems to me to be an overreaction. And indeed, risks, for third parties at least, risks them falling foul of the law quite innocently. So the example I gave in my evidence was, let's say you had a campaign against hospital closures, but that you and that was a third party campaign, but you might want to put up candidates in a couple of seats where there were particular hospitals that were under threat, let's say Kidderminster for the sake of argument. Now, would you, under the proposals in the elections bill, you'd have to pretend that this Save Kidderminster Hospital campaign was completely separate from Save English Hospitals, which is, you know, plainly daft. So I think you might be able to limit the number of seats in which those organisations could stand, but perhaps I think it's an overreaction. 
The other one, it seems to me, is about the coordination rules. And I think coordination is a real problem with between third parties because they can ostensibly be separate organisations but double their spending limit. A little like used to have the Communist Party of Britain and the Communist Party of Great Britain. Now, of course, they wouldn't speak to each other because it would be the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea. But you can imagine save English hospitals and save... British hospitals, ostensibly being separate. Now, so coordination is a problem. But the, the, and I do think it needs to be looked at, but the problem is the existing legislation is not fit for purpose. And that was revealed in the referendum because it's based on the same idea of the working together rules. So I do think that that needs to be completely re-examined to get a workable way of stopping third parties coordinating with themselves and indeed with political parties. And, and internationally, that's a very tricky issue, isn't it? Defining coordination. I, I'm all often amused by one of the loopholes that US political campaigns use where there are similar, not identical, but similar issues around coordination and uncoordinated expenditure is a big thing in US politics. And so you do, you see things like a candidate's campaign putting a whole load of footage available on a website of their candidate doing things like just sat at a desk signing a piece of paper not saying anything no graphics because what they're doing is they're making assets available that then an uncoordinated completely independent campaign can take that footage and put it into their own ad and so on but I think what works better about the British system generally and maybe we should cover this before beginning to wrap up is that that basic ban on TV advertising, a lot of the things that we've spoken about, about the problems with the current framework, the problems are massively reduced because there isn't the scope for political parties or third parties or potentially coordinated campaigns to buy TV advertising space. And so that restricts the scope to which money can be used in ways that undermine to democracy, obviously, for various different different definitions, as we talked about, about what counts as a fair democracy, but the restriction on TV. So is there anything else where you think, in a way, the answer to all of this is actually either to provide money to do X or to ban Y, which sort of would just basically reduce the relevance of these money questions in the first place? Well, just before I get to that, I mean, I think I would certainly agree with you about the the ban on tv advertising but how long that lasts as a break i think is a moot point because of the changing ways in which people consume that's a good point yeah so you know i'm well aware that i'm in tv terms i'm a fossil because i watch programs when they're on Rather than Thank goodness, you're, you're next going to tell me you have a special box in the corner that can only <laughs> show you TV, and that's how you watch it, is it? <laughs> well, I mean, but that's how that's how I do watch it. But yeah. I mean, for, for anyone uh, under forty years old, they watch TV yeah. in a completely different way. Uh, and as as digital uh, as as the web technology takes over from that, I think. The, the, the next challenge is going to be coordination of advertisements through the web rather than on TV. But to, so, so to go to the point about what would, what would work, I, th- I do think there is an argument for limiting large donations. Yeah. And I do think one way of doing that is to cap them 
But if you cap them, you have to accept that the only realistic way in which we will have properly funded parties is there for, is for there to be some contribution from the public purse. I think that is a price worth paying, and it is not an expensive price. So I took part in the review by the Committee on Standards in Public Life 10 years ago now, and the equivalent cost in order to be able to cap donations at £10,000 a year then was 50 pence per voter per year. I mean, it's it's absolute chicken thing. Politics is very cheap. I remember discussing <laughs> with a potential donor a few years ago about the relative costs of a general election campaign and what a donation might pay towards that. And if they gave money to an Oxbridge college and the amount of a college building that you can construct (laughs) for the cost of running a national general election campaign is, you know, you can definitely get a stairwell, but you probably don't get the whole building overall. Thank goodness, compared to, say, the US politics in Britain is is a pretty cheap enterprise. It is, but that's in part, I mean, I agree there's the break, there's the natural break because there's no advertisement on television allowed. But I go back to my point that parties are phenomenally efficient organisations and we should be applauding parties for that, not attacking them all the time because in order to survive, they have to take, you know, get money sometimes from a large donor. You know, I, There is an example in a blog that I've published recently of of a fascinating article that I remember reading at the time, going back to about 2001, by John O'Farrell. And the Labour Party had just been in receipt of a donation of £6 million. And this was causing some disquiet amongst Labour members. And he said, can you imagine how many Labour Party karaoke nights you'd have to have in order (laughs) to raise that sum of money? And he's absolutely right. There, There isn't this... I mean, your university example is a great one. If you go to US universities, their endowments are huge. British universities, that culture simply doesn't exist. So the idea of small donations piling up uh, in sufficient number is just a myth. The only time it's really happened was actually for Labour when they had a the very the, the challenge to Corbyn's leadership in 2016, where people flocked to join or to sign up as uh, associate members simply to vote. And that was a huge financial boost to the Labour Party at the time. But having a very divisive campaign doesn't seem to me to be a good business uh, plan for a party. And even that wasn't really people donating. It was people joining to get a vote. Yeah, and they yeah. happened to have to pay money, either as an associate or full member, to do it, wasn't it? It, it, it mm. wasn't a, I'm rushing to donate to this cause. It's, it's, it's Financially, it's a great move. The, the French socialists uh, did this originally to, to widen, well, ostensibly to widen the participation in the uh, nomination for their presidential candidate, Francois Hollande. But in actual fact, it ended up raising a lot of money. Mm. So it, it's, it's quite a neat trick but it's very much a one-off. Okay, just before we wrap up, as I mentioned at the beginning, a fair number of listeners probably have received and hopefully returned your agent surveys over the years. So I just thought it'd be interesting for people, particularly who have done those surveys, to know what have you learned? What's maybe the most surprising thing that you've learned from surveying election agents? The surprising thing is actually how effective constituency campaigns continue to be. Oh, you're buttering up the audience here beautifully, (laughs) Justin. (laughs) 
Well, uh, to give you an example, if we go to 2015 and, and your own party, you know, from the outside, you would say, given the outcome, the Liberal Democrat campaign would be, it would be difficult to judge it as being successful. Mm. But in fact, the constituency campaigning meant, on a basis of our estimates, that rather than ending up with eight seats, if you hadn't done that campaigning, you'd have ended up with four. Mm. Now, in the context of how many seats your party had, that seems to me to be a real win. Uh, and, and the campaigning continues to be very effective. Interestingly, what we found in the last two elections, and we're working on this at the moment, is the impact of Brexit has really muddied the waters uh, in that respect. But to go back to the most, the most surprising thing. So building on some work I'd done with the Constitution Unit at UCL, we, we, we wrote a book some, it must have been about 2008, on what British politics would look like in 2020. And so my con contribution was about parties. And I looked at party members and party finances. And one of the things that I was projecting was that there would be a looser definition of a member so mm. that you would get more people involved in parties who were, hadn't signed up, hadn't signed on the dotted line. So on the basis of that sort of projection, we started introducing questions into our survey, which asked how many people got involved in the local mm. general election campaign who hadn't signed up as members and what did they do? And we thought there'd be a few, but we were absolutely staggered by the scale of it. Now, I remember when we published the first paper, you wrote something in your, your Lib Dem newswire uh, that said, well, actually, this has always been the case mm. with the Lib Dems. Uh, and clearly, we'd failed to pick up on it before. But it was also true with the Conservative mm. and Labour Party. And I think that that's been one of the things that surprised us uh, most about the scale of people who get involved who don't sign on the dotted line. Now, in some ways, that's great. Parties mobilising people, getting them involved. But I do think it can present a threat to parties. Uh, and that happened with your own party in 2015. So the, mm. the number of people who got involved who weren't members in 2015 because of the difficult period of the coalition plummeted. And I think that's one of the dangers for you. Talking to some Lib Dem agents after the elections, we asked them, why did people get in, do this? Why didn't they just join? And some of them said, well, they didn't want to get the begging letters for donations and they could help the Liberal Democrats, uh, but not join the party and therefore avoid the, the, the begging bowl. And that goes back to our point about you're simply not going to generate lots of small donations. So I think that's been the most interesting, well, not, not the most interesting, but the, the most surprising yeah. thing and one that I think it needs to be explored further. Yeah, definitely, because I think it raises a question about whether the long-term picture of British political party membership is really that accurate. Because the, the basic story that is told in umpteen graphs and different political sort of science books, lecture slide decks and so on, is one that shows a long-term decline in political party membership in the UK. The graph normally starts in about 1945, mm. and you then have, in the last few years, a possible bit of a turning of the tide, because you've had the Greens and the SNP and the Lib Dems and Labour and the Conservatives all at different times having membership sort of spurts. And you've had a bit of that in the past, but there have been so many in the last few years that there's maybe a story of optimism about the last few years. But the basic picture is 
relentless decline. The alternative possible truth is that if you were to graph not membership, but membership plus non-member helpers, so the people your survey picked up, the graph might look very, very different because as we're recording this, I've got on the shelf just behind me a selection of old political party agent manuals from all sorts of different parties. And you can see over time, the reference to non-members helping has become more and more important. So mm. if you were somehow to be able to graph the non-member helpers, I think that over that decline of membership, you would see the other graph going exactly the opposite way and up and up and up. So what's the net effect of those two numbers? I think I, probably nobody really knows, but it may well be that actually politics is healthier compared to the past than we think it is when we just look at the membership graph. I, I think that's true. I mean, I think part of the, the problem, if you like, is that as a society, we beat ourselves up about identifying with parties. Uh, and therefore, it's it's a big step to join a political party. I, I do think it, it, it's healthier than, than one might imagine. And it's, it's clearly good that parties are able to mobilise people to get out there and do stuff. And in a way, why, you know, given what we saw with, with Labour, why would you join a party if you can... You can have a vote on the things that you care about, but not get uh, tied up with fairly tiresome meetings. There, there is a there is a big question to to ask, and of course, as with you know the the great disease I think of political science, one of the many great diseases is the comparison with the fifties, which is a completely different world. People joined political parties in the fifties in large numbers because it was a fantastic social thing to do. And there was very little competition for people's time. That time has gone. The better comparison in terms of vote share, in terms of all sorts of things, is not with the 50s. It's with the 70s and the 80s, which is the new modern era. But I, again, I go back to the point of what do, I think there's a danger for our parties that they become, if we, if we move to more non-members rather than members, that they become shells a little bit like US parties. And I think that's more of a problem. And that's more likely to lead to the disconnect between parties and citizens that you see in that's projected in some European countries, whether that's through large money from private sources or large amounts of money from the state. And, and I guess there is a different take on that, which is about how it makes for a better and healthier democracy if you've got more and less informal ways of people getting involved in parties, which is the point of view that Tim Bale on a previous podcast, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, I think has made quite eloquently the argument on the other side about the value of political parties innovating in how people uh, can take take part in their activities. So I will let listeners listen to Tim Bale's take as well. And uh, do tweet myself and Justin and Tim as to which of the two you think has got the most convincing case. But I think it's been really interesting listening, listening to you, Justin. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing your take on issues where I think generally the attitude in my own party, the Lib Dems, is one of, oh, we think the current system isn't great. But once you, as you have done so nicely in this podcast, once you get into the details, there are all sorts of quite tricky questions to grapple with. So thank you for that really interesting discussion. Listeners, do watch out in the show notes for follow-up links uh, to various items that we've discussed. And you can find Justin on Twitter at Justin underscore T underscore Fisher. 
I hope that's the right Justin Fisher. That's the right. <laughs> I've yes, got, yes, I've got yes, yes. John Lewis on you. <laughs> Myself <laughs> at Mark Back and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. So thank you very much to everyone for listening. Please do t- tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.